Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Bridge, a show connecting East and West. I am your guest host, Jesse Appel, IATSE. I was a stand-up comedian for nine years in China, and now I'm in Los Angeles doing Chinese comedy, English comedy, and really a little bit of everything. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, consider giving us a like or giving us five stars, suggestions or comments, anything that you'd like to share with us. Hit us up with an email at welovethebridge at gmail.com. That's we love the bridge. Here with Tom Xia, my co-host. Hey, everybody. Tom's film director. Uh, and uh, was a, uh, a director on films in both the U.S. and in China. And uh, we did improv and comedy together. And so, uh, thusly, we make up a, a team yes. of people that have now both found ourselves in L.A. run this podcast. This episode is for you, specifically. Thank you. Contractually, he is. Uh, <laughs> got to gotta say this, one, this one's yours. No, yeah. um, uh, this, uh, I wanted to do the topic today about film directing. Uh, because this is something that you've done a lot. I've also dabbled in it, but I think it's really interesting because it's right at the mix of both the culture of storytelling and how it's different in both America and China and in like people, just sort of like, because a director is a people wrangler, you know? Yeah, So You're like a manager. A people manager and how that creative process goes through in different countries and stuff is, is fascinating to me. I'm actually very interested to uh, learn some stuff for you yeah. from, from you this, uh, this time through and um, see kind of how it uh, does or doesn't kind of uh, butt up against my experiences as more of a comedy writer and performer, less of a director. Um, yes. And so uh, I guess the, the first question to start us all out is um, <laughs> explain kind of how you got into directing and uh, how you got started. Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to be in the entertainment industry ever since I was a kid. I think, um, you know, when I, uh, when I was uh, in school, second, you know, second grade onward, uh, my parents worked a lot, so I would spend a lot of times in uh, in movie theaters. My dad would drop me off at this ninety nine cent movie theaters where they would show like movies that have been uh, that have been uh, uh, on screen for like three months. <laughs> Some of these are like old movies. <laughs> were that they were... Le- legitimately ninety nine cents? Like yeah, yeah, it was what? it was ninety nine cents, and I would just stay there for the whole day, and I what? would I would watch three movies until uh, <laughs> until I got a headache. Oh my gosh! And I do that every weekend, and I think that's when uh, yeah, that's real good training for, yeah. for film school, right? At least at least it got me really interested in filmmaking. Um, but I think what really kind of drove me to want to do something in the entertainment industry was just the lack of representation that I saw in Hollywood. I wanted mm. to make stories with with uh, Chinese faces. Mm. And as much as I, I loved uh, Hollywood movies, that's something I didn't get to see. And it's, you know, it's not an unusual story. It's why a lot of people, a lot of minorities get into the industry. And, um, you know, this is was, this was mine as well. Mm. And so when you uh, when you saw these movies, because especially somebody now that like makes creative stuff, I feel like I watch movies differently than when I was just a kid. And I had yeah. I was never like, oh, how'd they get that lighting or like, oh, that uh, how would they uh, you know, how are they feeding? You don't think extras? about the technical. <laughs> <you're> right. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. Are they union or non-union? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you don't think about that sort of stuff. But you said kind of from the beginning, it kind of got you interested in making it as well, which is even for people who watch a lot of movies, not everybody wants to 
make the movies. Right. And what do you think it was about you that really wanted to do that work? Again, my motivation in the beginning, I wanted to act. That was that was yeah. the thing because of the of the lack of representation. And I just it looked like a really fun career to have. So I didn't, you know, I was never like really enthralled with like the technicalities of movie making. You know, like oh, what? How do we compose an image? And yeah. it was more about like oh, what kind of? I wanna I wanna tell stories that I grew up with. I mm-hmm. wanna tell stories that kind of reflect uh, my immigrant experience mm-hmm. or see more see more Chinese faces than than I'm seeing now. And then that evolved into me realizing like oh, you know, maybe I can do more as a writer director. Mm. You know, as an actor, you're constantly waiting. Uh, you're constantly waiting for opportunities to. Uh, Come to, to you to come to you, and for Chinese Americans, I think that's really difficult. It's so like like when I got to China and started doing the sort of intercultural comedy that I wanted to do, and there was mixing languages, and it was like it was you know doing this sort of stuff. I I found out very quickly I wasn't going to be able to wait for a random Chinese writer to write that, you know? Right. Um, and so that was part of the reason I got so interested in writing, and I guess by uh, maybe you, you could call it directing as well, but for, yeah, more I'm sure for shorts. For you, I'm sure it was even more yeah, obvious that yeah, <laughs> nobody well, was going to yeah. write for Jesse. Well, it was funny because like the roles that were available for white people in China was like you could be a, a foreign soldier, you could be an exchange student, you could be an a, interpreter. An, an interpreter. There were like these really niche Uh, roles a pastor (laughs) um and and i realized and you know what and and part of this is a reputation thing but i also just realized i didn't love acting enough to really like the people who love acting they're like i don't care that i have one line yeah like my character is real right like i am like i'm gonna hit that like you know k-swiss thing with all i got and i was just like i just didn't find my soul was into it yeah unless i had also been a part of making the thing right you know and so that and that's beyond acting or representation or anything i think the like the people who are just into acting care so much about every role yeah that it real that even like it they get pumped to do audition tapes because they're like, I love acting so much. I want to try this character out. <laughs> I mean, was there in, in in being a part of the creative process? Was there a message that you wanted to deliver, or you know, something personal that you wanted to express? I think so. I think that like my my kind of shtick that I've been trying to get out is kind of like is like humanism. It's like, hey, everybody, we're all here to kind of try to figure out a way to enjoy life, and life is crazy sometimes, and life is silly. But like when you cross the cultures you realize kind of what's important and what's not. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, the the human themes that still work are the best themes. Right. And and so those are the sort of things that I try to get at with my comedy through the lens of being a foreigner in China or in America, being an American that left the country for a long time. Right. When you tell stories about what happened in faraway places, but you as that person in that place are kind of, this character that's somehow in between. Yeah. That in betweenness, I think, speaks to a lot of people more than they would think. And it definitely speaks to people in America who are who are find themselves in between. Yeah. And it was fascinating chatting with you and realizing that like you were you were trying to change the stereotype of of white people in China. Yeah. Although that's like it's, <laughs> it's a, like really a really weird, uphill battle. It's a, it's a really weird battle and it's also a battle that is like very not trendy in America right now. Like I'm gonna <laughs> really like fight for the white people. But yeah. it's not really what I intended on doing and I wouldn't say that's my real goal. My goal is to say fight for the the people that have different life experiences. But then the question is, how do you do it better? And so you saw the your way of doing it better you felt was going through directing. Yeah, and it wasn't even doing it. Yeah, maybe doing it better, but just having an opportunity to 
tell stories that yeah that weren't gonna come yeah it was pointless to wait and in the beginning you know it's like I think I was really like a man. No one's telling Asian American stories. How come Hollywood is against Asian Americans? And as I as I got older, I realized like it's actually not that at all. It's just you know like I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. Not a lot of people grew up in the San Gabriel Valley are in the industry. So yeah. it's not they wouldn't even know how to go about it. It would come off inauthentic. But if I were to do it, it would be truthful to my experience, and mm-hmm. it would come off authentic. So the only the best thing I can do is just tell my story. So then, what do you remember? Like, what was the first thing you ever directed? Do you remember? Yeah, I, the first thing I directed um, was in college. I did a documentary about it was called the Elephant in the Pink Tutu, and it was about uh, the mansionization of my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Chinese new rich would come in, and they would turn these old white ranch homes mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> into uh, these McMansions. And then their white neighbors who lived in smaller ranch homes would complain They're at like, these like <laughs> behemoths next door. That's interesting. And I wanted to get two points of view because I grew up with knowing both sides. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would interview the white family, understand what they disliked about the, you know, these like McMansions that were truly awfully ugly. Yeah. <laughs> like the, and, the architecture choice was, was uh, yeah. questionable. And why they wanted to maintain their ranch house because it reminded them of the family they grew up in, of the generations of families that, that, you know, that they raised. There's memory. And, and then I interviewed the Chinese family and just to let the audience know, you know, you know, aesthetically it could it looks really jarring, but the the reason why Chinese people build big houses with no yard, they like to live together. Mm. They like to live with their parents as well. So yeah, it's you, still about you family. Need, you need that you need that space if you're yeah. gonna have your grandparents and your, your help kids out with in your kids. House. Exactly. So it's multi generational in one household. So that's why they need a bigger house. So really, like on the outside, the two families may have opposing views, but at the heart of it they actually both want the same thing. Interesting. Yeah. And, and and there's a lot of stories like that. Yeah. And so you made this uh, elephant in a pink tutu. Yeah, it was a documentary short film. When I did, did you did make for that? School. When I was in uh, in college, and I made that for school. And, uh, you know, yeah, people, I think people enjoyed it because you just, you don't get a lot of stories out of the San Gabriel Valley. And and the, the, I kind of went down the documentary rabbit hole after that. I, I, I immediately... Sign on to another project after this. Um, it was uh, it was like a documentary series about Chinese exchange students in America, mm-hmm. and it was like a fourteen part series. And I did like half the stories. And one story that really popped out was we we flew to uh, Des Moines, Iowa, mm-hmm. and I followed this kid, this Chinese kid from uh, Guangdong, China. Yep, he's like five three. Yeah, and he joined a white frat. Do you feel like he really got in? Did it seem like he was in the frat? He earned his respect absolutely. Yeah, like. It didn't matter that you know they made fun of him because well, that's like what he was the do. Like, yeah. that's like th- I mean this exactly. is the weird thing about comedy and this is the thing I love about comedy is like you I, I remember somebody told me this it was a, it was a quote from a friend of mine but it was it was really great she's like you know your your um like your friends will compliment you your real friends will roast you yeah yeah like and that's the thing is like people are saying well you're doing really great it looks like everything's going great that person's an acquaintance yeah your 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 friend walks into your brand new house you just bought and said like wow you bought this trashy thing <laughs> like you know trashy right. piece of crap blah 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 blah. because you know somebody so well that you're comfortable ragging them yeah and then that's that's really i feel like with the u.s china thing where why the comedy i feel personally I and mean, i'm going back to comedy but storytelling is involved in this as well like stories where characters are able to act like that have has always really attracted me like buddy comedies 
you think of rush hour or, or stuff like that, or you think of like, you know, the, I was thinking of the buddy comedy format. I wrote a buddy comedy script in China in, in, um, when I was in China for this reason, it's like you start off insulting people, but then it turns into something else. Yeah. And it allow and it becomes from a ten, a tension point, it becomes a tension release. Yeah, it melts all the ice. It melts all <laughs> yeah. the ice and it also allows you to show that like there is a way past sort of like um what would you call it like tolerant like milk toast interaction. Right. And that's like friendship. Yeah. And and so that's why I would like those stories like that about the guy in the frat house. Yeah, there was definitely a brotherhood. I mean, I coming from L.A. and just, you know, you don't you don't hear these like overt races like I think they call it Kung Fu Jiao or something. It was just like, man, that's kind of insulting. Was that his nickname? (laughs) Something like, yeah, it was something just like, like, wow, that's really insulting. What do they mean by it? But again, again, like, you know, it was in a frat and. He, he just he took it and he gave it back you know he just yeah. he was never and he would listen to chinese music in his truck you know like <laughs> so he you know he never lost that side of himself and yeah that was amazing it was just amazing to see that like this i, I love this, that so much because it's like you hear a lot of the phrase like cultural confidence or whatever like a lot of the thing is like cultural confidence doesn't necessarily just mean coming out with a better song or a better movie it means like I like this and I'm going to play it in my truck. Yeah. Like, and then like, I don't care whether the other people at the, at the intersection think it's weird that I roll up and I'm listening to Canto. Yeah. Yeah. Like love, love Chinese love ballads. Yeah. Like you know, Chinese <laughs> love ballads or whatever in the middle of Iowa. So, yeah. I, so, and this is kind of the, it comes back to the, that like the role of the director. Do you feel like the director's role is to identify which of these stories are really going to be the ones that, that help move your, I don't want to say your vision of the way the world should be, but sort of like shine that light onto things that you that you feel the light should be shined onto. Yeah, I think so. I think I think a director's job is to to just reveal different perspectives and show different parts of the world that you know you don't really get to see. Um, in terms of how these stories turn out, especially documentaries, I think the beauty of documentaries is you never know how it's going to turn out. And yeah. that's what's both frightening and addicting about making documentaries. But knowing that, okay, like, no one else is going to come to Des Moines, Iowa and tell this story. And I, I'm i lucky enough to have access to this. And I think, that, you know, his story represents my story, represents a lot of other people's voices, not just in America, but probably around the world. These yeah. implants who are, you know, he started when he was in high school and life isn't easy and we get to hear these stories and it's it surely encouraged me and i think other people hearing this would be encouraging as well just like i mean for you jesse like you going to beijing i'm sure i don't know i I mean you tell me like you know how that affected people who've heard your story yeah i think it's just sort of like when i when i think of like what really leads to an impact is like people want to see a commitment like if you go on to Beijing on vacation, that's cool. If you apprentice to a master teacher for six and a half years to learn an obscure East Asian folk art, all of a sudden, I think people look at me differently having known that uh, than they did as just sort of like a, like, oh, you lived abroad. Right. And I, I think that that time and commitment, similar to the thing he put in the frat, got, you know, who knows what they made him do in order to join that frat. Right. But then once you're in... That's why it's so valuable like that, uh, like people want to see what you're willing to spend in your time and energy. And I don't want to say suffer because I enjoyed studying comedy. It was it was it was uh, it was not suffering at all. 
But like there were, you know, you, you go on stage and you bomb doing jokes in a, in a robe doing a hundred year old jokes. And sometimes you're like, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. And so there, there is a question kind of going through there that you have to fight through. I think that the, the more that I've realized it, I'm like anybody who has spent that effort in any realm of cross-cultural stuff, like place, and that could be across countries or it could be across cultures. Like, as you said, like you were the only guy that was the bridge between those white ranch homes and the, the Asian families building the McMansions. Anybody who finds themselves in that bridging opportunity, that's more valuable than you think. Like, you know, you to you, it's normal life to everybody else. It's like, how did that person find themselves in this situation, that's an interesting story. Right. And if you look at it from the storytelling perspective, um, anybody who's worked between worlds, they wind up being in a spot to tell stories. No, that's so, a that's a really good point, Jesse. Yeah. Actually, just to just to piggyback off of that real quick, it it's that, you know, as a director, I think it's important to kind of pull yourself out and see the world from a third person's point of view. And I think having lived in America as an immigrant and going back to China and also feeling like I don't truly fit in, it allows me to do that. It mm-hmm. allows me to look at it look th- look at that world from a more objective point of view or or just a different point of view very good so we're going to take a very quick break but when we get back we're going to talk more about uh tom's documentaries and the differences in the role of the director in uh china and the u.s Welcome back and looking at uh, U.S.-China cultural topics. Uh, same thing, different, seeing different things. That's the whole point. I'm Jesse Appel here with uh, Tom Xia. Hello. And Tom's films that he's made and sort of looking at the role of that director and what the power, like what power does the director have to be able to bring to bear to share stories across the cultures and, wh- and why is that relevant? And so yes. the, uh, the next one I wanted to talk about uh, is a documentary that you made in the States uh, that was called uh, Christmas Without China. Is that yes. right? Yeah, Christmas Without China. You can watch it on PBS. Yeah, even today. <laughs> Hit that big PBS money. That's yeah. where you know you really made. It. But PBS That's is right. I mean, actually, for documentaries, that must be the the top of the top, right? It was. I mean, oh, they yeah. are. I mean, they are. Yeah, they're very supportive towards documentaries. And PBS is in yeah in in the realm of documentaries. You want to be with PBS. They give you the most rights. Uh, and yeah, they, they they give you a lot of support. That's good. Also, you could. Did you ever meet Ken Burns at any? documentary events uh we're not allowed to make eye contact with oh, okay. yeah but um uh in any case uh so tell us more about that documentary christmas without china and sort of what what brought you in as a director like what made you feel like that's what you want to direct and what was the process of directing it like? sure sure so uh you know i uh the premise of Christmas Without China is where I challenge a white family to see if they can survive a Christmas season without using any products made from China. And, and on top of that, they have to remove everything made in China from their home and put it in a storage container outside of their house, <laughs> which they did. And, and So you did this for real? We did this for real. We actually found a family, not unpaid, mm-hmm. that were willing to uh, go through hell uh, for the Christmas season. Wow. And and what initially started this idea was, I think it was like 2000. I mean, I, I did this a while back. It was 2008 or 2009. It was it was an election cycle, and I would just 
here in the news, everybody's attacking China. It was like we had footage of like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump attacking China. Yeah. This is before he ran for president. Yeah, that's funny. And and you know, I think I think it's true for me and for a lot of other people um, with Chinese backgrounds. It's hard to it's hard to disconnect the culture from the politics. Mm-hmm. So when they attack China culturally i feel attacked because it's just like sure. a broad attack on or or do you feel this way you're like you don't trust other people to be able to make that separation yeah i don't so you feel worried because it's like you know all you need is one wacko who you know thinks that oh the trade policy changed so i gotta punch this guy in the face next time i see you know see it, people but it you happens. Know, that's true i mean you have chinese senior citizens getting pushed to their death because of this, you know, like they're being attacked today in San Francisco, New York, everywhere. So it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And, and I felt, I felt that way. I felt like, man, like this isn't good for any, for Chinese Americans or Asian Americans. Yeah. Yeah, It was such a broad stroke attack. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm like, why don't I find a, like a reality TV premise to kind of flip the script a little bit. It's like, it's easy for mainstream America to, to blame China every election season, but in reality, can we live without Chinese products? How just how connected are we? Yeah. Right, like, like, do we need each other? So I what think was, is what I wanted to find out. So then, so that was the question. And then, what was the uh, what was the American family's first response to hearing the pitch? And like, where like, 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 what kind of directorial magic did it take to convince them that they should do this? So, so interestingly, I knew like if I went in, I don't know, maybe I was. I was self-conscious about my own background too. I'm like a Chinese guy just going directly to an American, a white family and asking them to do this seems like there seems to be like a bigger agenda here. I don't know if they would agree. So I got my friend who's a, who's a cinematographer and his sister who's a, also a documentary uh, filmmaker. And she ended up directing the documentary at the end. She's a white, she's a white filmmaker. And I wanted this team to make, I think a white family feel like they're not, they're not being attacked. Interesting. And it wasn't even yeah. like I wanted to attack them, but I wanted to, I don't know, I feel like that was my access to was, the white family. It was family. important that you had a, a more well-rounded team. Yeah, and because... I never hid behind the camera. I was there. I was in the documentary. I confronted the families. Yeah. And yeah, I just wanted a more, yeah, like you said, a more well, well-rounded yeah. documentary team. Well, this is kind of, oh, I'm, I'm eager to get to the what we found out in the documentary, but I want to take a moment to talk about this this mixed team question because there's a lot of question right now in the the representation in Hollywood and representation in media on screen getting to a certain place but then when you go backstage there's not as many Asian writers or there's not as many black writers whatever it is Um, but then you also hit this question which is like what is the right balance like you know like if I were you know I did I I did comedy in China about you know uh, in Chinese about the life of, let's say, foreigners in China. But I would never want to have the team be entirely foreigners in China and right. make a movie in China. That seems like that seems like it's its own type of, of weird thing. Yeah. You know, so like some sort of mixing of, of people's experience seems necessary to create the best product. Yeah. Would you, would you say that's accurate? I think so, because it offers different points of view. Now, I think if it's an Asian American experience, you should hire an Asian American with a similar experience. They can add a lot of details to that story. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I see like in Hollywood movies where they just hire an Asian person for dialogue. 
who's never probably been to China before. Yeah. And once the actor starts speaking Chinese, even though it's an Asian face, you realize like, oh man, this is like... Or, or the Asians read it differently. Like I remember now that I speak Chinese, I saw this like... This, uh, it was, I think it was on The Daily Show or something. Some politician in the South made a weird attack ad about how he wasn't going to take any crap from China. And, right. and they, they found a Chinese actor who had the thickest Taiwanese accent like, that, I could, that I could listen to. I'm <laughs> like, this like, accent makes this whole thing so much more complicated in yeah. ways that they completely do not understand. Right. And, and anybody watching the situation would know that unless you were just completely ignorant of the situation, which it turns out they were. Yeah. So, um, so like that whole question about even like accents or like, oh, this guy talks like they're from Hong Kong that has connotations in China. Uh, the, this guy acts like, you know, this guy has a, a, a Chinese American accent. Right. Sounds like they've never, their sentence structure is like weird. You know, you wouldn't say that. Yeah. It's not linguistically wrong. It's just like, that's not how people talk. And by the way, you know this, Jesse. Yeah. It happens on both sides. I mean, a Chinese a film production hiring a white oh, guy, God. right? Like, I'm not even going to get from into like the Eastern Europe. Like, oh, yeah. The, the amount of Russians that play English teachers on TV or the amount of Russians that actually are English teachers in China. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but um, yeah, but uh, nothing against my Russian friends, but like, yeah. you know, the, the English can be a suspect. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so um, now this is not to say that, like, you know, if there's a great Russian actor and they can get the accent right, they should do it. I don't think there's anything wrong with wrong with uh, with that. But but you're you're you usually are we doing that because it's the easy way or are we doing that because it's the right choice? And that's it's the, the easy question. way. Yeah, it's just easy. It's convenient. So let's say. OK, yeah. so going back to the uh, the uh, to your uh, movie. Yeah. So you um, we were concerned. How do we find the family? We yeah. went to a, we went to a night market and a fair. A, a local fair and then i just approach different families and straight up ask them if they you know if they're concerned about chinese products and this was at a time where all the families were concerned about lead products in toys okay because that's what was in the news that cycle 24 like 7 the hot topic yeah and that again that's part of that pissed me off because i'm like nobody's mentioning mattel nobody's well nobody nobody's putting blame on the american toy companies everybody is focusing on chinese made toys yeah it's like you're like you know these are american companies that are manufacturing there like this is their yeah job. they have no say in any of this like yeah. they yeah they're completely innocent in all of this they make the most profit and but but you know these parents were concerned so we found a family and the mother was genuinely concerned about chinese products because of what she's been reading and hearing mm -hmm. and she really wanted to do it she's like yeah i am curious what's going to happen you know like and, and i'm like this is great and as a filmmaker and this is as you said kind of the fun of the documentary is like if you're doing it right you don't know what's going to happen yeah what did it feel like for you from a creative perspective when you started to notice the shift from as you said, kind of a win, which implies that you had kind of seen it coming. To yeah, like a gotcha moment. Yeah, to to something that you didn't anticipate. I, I, I actually embraced it because I was in the documentary myself and they confronted me too. They're like, they, they you know, they asked me why I, I was even doing, doing this documentary. So it confronted my own identity mm. and, you know, what I wanted to say in America. So, and then I brought my own family into the documentary of like, you know, my background and then, and then I had them come over because my dad's an acupuncturist. So my dad actually performed acupuncture on oh, the family. Nice. So it became like this cultural exchange at the end of the documentary, which was completely unexpected. You, but you, you it was scary for me because it, it made me confirm my own identity. That was, I mean, and that's kind of really cool because 
I feel like one of the things that social media does well, even though sometimes the content can be junky, is like you can't get away with hiding behind the lens anymore. Yeah. And the uh, it sounds like you initially anticipated this more as like for you, it would be a philosophical exercise because you didn't have to take anything out of your house. Right. And then once you realize it's like I was the host and, right, and yeah. you found and you found that once you found people that were willing to take the step for your philosophical interests, you owed them to stand up and answer their questions. And it camera. was a yeah, and it was a genuine look into like what what am I trying to achieve here? Like what you know, why am I why is there a strong desire to stand up for for uh, China and for you know for for my own identity and what was my identity? It was confusing. It still is. To what a, is, to what a certain do you degree. think you found out through that? Like, did you find because because my 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 look at this is I've I mean this is again from my outside perspective what I've kind of felt with a lot of Chinese friends of mine, both Chinese uh, in China and also Chinese American, is that they really dislike the made in China thing because it also tends to be like cheaper products, mass produced products not the quote unquote like high value creative products or whatever. Apple is, you know, made in China, designed in America. They're very clear about that. Yeah. Um, and that kind of like, I think it gives an interpretation to people that, oh, maybe me, maybe I'm mass produced, maybe I'm less yeah. valuable. Is that accurate or? It is, I think to a certain degree, we don't, you know, it's like we don't want to be associated with like cheap products because yeah. it's everything, everything is tied together. I don't want, it's kind I don't of funny be... because in Boston, the, the, the irony about Boston is it's kind of like a blue collar thing. So like Boston's like a mess and like Boston people like being like kind of being uh, a mess. <laughs> like in some ways, like if you've seen the uh, <laughs> the uh, Boston, that, that great SNL commercial, the SNL sketch where they go to Dunkin Donuts yeah. <laughs> and the and like the guy, the guy who's like the real Bostonian in the commercial has his cell phone cracked and he brings his friend in from the construction job right. and is like, you know, making a wreck of things and they get, get into a fight. And like the Boston people kind of like that. But I think a lot of that, again, you need to have the confidence to say that right. nobody is, nobody's really saying Boston should be wiped, like, you know, uh, ignored or like, you know, these people are, are really like, you know, low lives. It's something when you do it to yourself, it's a different thing from the implication being brought in from the outside. Yeah. And it's, I think it's important for all minorities to embrace their culture and it's hard to do that because yep. especially if it's associated with like negative negative things so let's keep going on the documentary what did they discover when they when they did the christmas without china what was it like for them again it was it was nearly impossible they had to take out their kids clothes in and store put in a storage bin they had to remove their couch i mean we started looking through the house and yeah, nearly everything was made in China. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to be uh, like, you know, whiny about it, you could have taken out their plumbing probably or something like that copper pipe you and, know? <laughs> and parts, parts in their car. So if you really want to go. Yeah. It yeah. would have been, it just, it would have been impossible. It would have been really impossible. Do. But I guess the, the, even getting close to it must have, what was their Christmas like? Like describe it. So we, we just thought it was going to be one of the worst Chris because leading up to it, it was just a nightmare. We were, you know, we, we we can't be more appreciative of them going through this whole process. It just turned their lives upside down. They had two kids too. Yeah. It's nearly it was nearly impossible. Having said that, their Christmas was really calm because, you know, they didn't have their T V, they didn't have any of the electronics. Mm. And they sat you know, and talked to each other. They really just sat around the tree and just hung out. And it kind of 
it stripped everything down to its to the bones wow to the essence of what christmas should be is would be with your family so it was a really sweet it was a really sweet conclusion and what did what did that make you feel as the as the director did it make you feel like yeah do you make did it make you feel yeah how did it make you feel well i was i was i was the producer and the, the host producer, yeah. and alicia dwyer was the director um but it made me feel again it was so unexpected it made me feel great it made me appreciate christmas more myself because mm. it made me like realize like yeah we do have a lot of crap it is like capitalism on steroids like we, yeah. we're constantly rushing to buy each other stuff and just like ourselves stuff and we just have so much stuff mm. it's i think that that's kind of the the irony i've always felt this weird irony about business being the thing tying together china and america because um now when everything is so bad i'm like wishing the business were back because like at least that would that would show everybody that at least we can still profit off of working together right but um before i was always kind of like we need to be more than just business partners if this is really going to work out because it's kind of like what you've seen over the last couple of years as the cultures become separated as we watch different tv shows as we listen to different stories as we restrict travel um, make it harder for people to get visas on both sides. Um, we wind up living in a world where it's easier to cut each other out. Yeah. And the and the the I wonder if it's almost is it a I almost wonder if is it is it a good ending or a bad ending that the family discovered maybe something good about taking all of this stuff out of their house from China. I don't know. I mean, we we definitely put them through hell, but it was it was eye opening for me. I hope it was eye opening for our audience. I don't want the audience to you know, go away from the project and realize like, oh, we need to decouple from China. Yeah. I feel like there's a bigger, well, I think there's a bigger it, message there. It really is more about consumerism than China because yeah. it's like you could have. You think people in China aren't buying all no, this yeah, crap, right? And, well, that's the thing. Yeah. It's like everybody's buying all this stuff. And, um, and, uh, and, and the, the thing that we need is just the family and being able to talk, you know, and to yeah. be able to enjoy the time and it's time be able to spend that time in relaxation and know that Christmas is for, for relaxing. Yeah. You know? It's to, it's to, it's to turn off and be with family. Same I think for that's... Chinese new year. Like, you know, right. even if you like, you know, even though I'm sure like, you know, this is one of my first Chinese new years in the States and, you know, I went to a mall and they had some Chinese new year's lamps and stuff up in the mall. And it was like, okay, this is, kind of like is, is you know 0.1% of the ex, of the uh energy that would be invested in China but at the same time the actual Chinese New Year night I was invited by some Chinese friends to go and have hot pot which is great and then we went back to their apartment and played mahjong honestly Chinese New Year in China is oftentimes a very lonely time for me right. because Everybody's all my home. Chinese friends go home right. they're not from Beijing some of them all my foreign friends leave to go to Thailand for vacation you know or <laughs> something funny. like that um or they go to you know their Chinese in-laws or whatever right and Beijing shuts down my social sphere comes from performing there were no shows so like I don't honestly look forward to Chinese New Year too much in China because it's kind of like a week off from like I like working I like showing up to shows and making people laugh yeah um and uh and and here I think because it was uh because people knew they needed to like you know like create that energy for themselves they kind of put more more thought and energy into it yeah so Chinese New Year, you know, here's a question. Could you do, you know, Chunxia without America? 
Probably, <laughs> probably very the, easily. Probably not that hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll end this section there then, and um, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the differences of the practicalities between being a director in China versus in the United States. about directing and my question was what is the what is the difference between the way it feels and the job of a director in the in china versus the job of the director in the united states yeah so directing in china um does feel very different than it does in the states in the states again i've not done any major projects in the states but on the smaller projects i've done it feels more collaborative it feels like i i know like uh if i give something to the set department like they are in charge of all the details. Like, I can't just go up and move things myself. They'll get pissed at oh, you. They would be very angry because it would infringe, you know, like, you do on the artistic job, do expression. Exactly. Yeah, and also, like, they, like, a lot of creatives in America get into stuff because they want to they make their own things. Yeah. And, they're, and they take gigs because they have to, but they still want to be able to make their own thing their own way. Yeah. The, uh, the, I think the freedom each department has is really, is really clear. And it's like, if I pick a, a set designer to do this, that means I trust the set designer to do this right and I give them this you know freedom to do that whereas in China I mean this is from my personal experience and from what I've seen like directors are still very more they still play a more traditional role where they control everything mm. everything goes back to the uh to the director. Got to get the director to sign off on yeah. every detail. And and they have to be in charge of every little detail. And I think it's true here too, but there's less I feel like there's less room to play if you if you're the set designer or you're the cinematographer. The director dictates what what goes what and they have more power and then more clout. It's just yeah, you know, that I mean it's it's not too different than a lot of just sort of uh like Chinese company hierarchical structure right. in, in like tech or something like that. Yeah. Like, you know, it would be you know, I remember I had a friend whose job was doing uh one on one training for executives in China sort of like helping them through whatever they had problems with because the executives at those levels, not only they, they felt very isolated because they didn't have that relationship with any of their departments that they could say, like, I really need you to handle this. Yeah. Um, and so that was one of the things that he said that they often said was that they he started you, you make all the decisions as the guy at the top because it's efficient in the beginning. But then as it scales, you get increasingly isolated. You get crushed. And you get just like put under all the pressure of having to make the decisions. Yeah. And I think a lot of people assume that the people at the top of these chains want to be control freaks. And the the answer is they, they don't want to be. They just don't know any other way. And by the time that they've realized that that a different system might be beneficial, it's too late to rewrite the culture of the company or something like that. Right, it's true, uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, Hollywood used to be like that. I mean, I, I think certain directors still have that power, but it does feel like more of a collaborative effort here. In, in the TV industry, I mean, directors are more for hire. They switch every episode, so yeah. they get plugged in. And the real people with the power are the showrunners, the writers, 
Versus mm. in China, the writers, they have The writers little, get nothing. <laughs> they really have, it's sad, I think they have little power in China and they deserve more. They deserve yeah. more responsibility and more respect uh, in the creative process yeah. because it starts with the writing. So tell us the process that you went through in your, uh, maybe a, a piece that you directed in China. You did the Wang Da, I remember. The, the, uh, sort yeah, of the, the, the Al Club, Maltoying Julobu. Yeah, that was the, uh, the, uh, the, the online feature that I directed. And I just remember like every, every set piece, every little thing, the color, the, the design had to go through me. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping like, I was really hoping like I would give a general direction and they would just give me something better. Mm-hmm. But usually it's like less than what I expect and I have to be very detail oriented. Mm-hmm. And I realized like that was the same thing in post-production when we were editing the, the picture too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know here a lot of editors, they have their, I mean, editors are, are, Editing is very creative. Editor editing is a weird sort of magic where it's like it's very difficult to teach. Like the like it's so much better as somebody who's created something to send it to somebody who's good and it comes out looking better than you imagined than to have to take something that wasn't as good and and literally sometimes frame by frame. There's a lot of creative liberty in editing. Yeah, like you know, sometimes you you don't want to get into the point where you're like frame by frame saying that shot was too long. It's just tiring, and and as a director, you lose you lose perspective because you've seen it so many times. So it's important to get fresh eyes, get an editor who can look at it from a different point of view. But I mean, look, I'm not saying every editor in China is like this, but a lot of times they are more technicians than they are creatives. They will just like, tell me where to cut, I'll cut. You know, whereas I editors here, I feel like, oh, it's like, wow, like this version that you've cut is much, it's not only is a difference, I didn't even think it was, this was possible. Yeah. So that's a collaborative effort. Interesting. And, and of course I would tell them to uh, delete it because it's not yeah. the version that I want. Yeah. And, and it's very important. You maintain your grip and I'm the goddamn director. The director. <laughs> well, that, yeah, well, it is a power question. trip. Do you feel, did you feel like you had to maintain an identity of being the, the, you know, like the big guy in charge to keep the whole ship on course? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the I think the funny thing is like because of the respect you get, everybody calls you like Xia yeah. Dao, like, yeah. like director Xia. Yeah. Director yeah, Daoyan is, is a fancy yeah. ass word. It's like it's, it's the level big... of respect. It's like auteur level. Like you're the master of 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 the ship, so you have to play the part. Mm. <laughs> you know, you can't you can't. It's like they push you up to a to yeah. a certain pedestal. You can't well, even come is, down from it. It's kind of that interesting thing. It's like if people treat you like like X, do you become X? You do. You have to act like you like you know everything. Did you did you did know not. that you were acting, or did you feel like uh, you became a different type of person for real? Well, at first it felt good because of like you know it's like. Uh, your ego it's like it's, it makes you feel powerful and You're important like, oh, like i didn't think the props department needed my opinion but i'm glad they asked yeah me. like <laughs> everybody's waiting for my opinion like i'm this like yeah i'm this master artist and then shortly you realize like man this is a lot of pressure i don't need all this pressure i need somebody to help me like just figure this stuff out yeah 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 sometimes like i just want to work with the actors and you know focus on the performance but you just yeah yeah i don't know i think the uh and so when you were Back there, do you have any uh, things in the Chinese process of directing that you feel were actually like really good and like could uh, people in the States could benefit from having that sort of experience? Yeah. So, I mean, despite the complaints, I think what it does is like if you work on enough projects, you realize you start you start gaining muscles in all departments Mm. and you become more aware of like what what, you know. Which department, how each department works, what they need. Yeah. And you become more scrappy. 
Yeah. Yeah, you start understanding the whole the whole thing. I think even though it's less because it's less collaborative, it forces you to understand each department better than you normally would. Yeah. I think you should anyway, but it gets you there No, but that, that sort of well-roundedness, it doesn't come by accident. It only comes when you are forced to really look into these things. I have a friend of mine uh, who just came out to LA and stayed with me for a bit who's a lighting designer for Broadway shows. Yeah. And also he's done, uh, he does like live events. And he's like, it's different in Broadway versus a live event. But um, the directors very rarely think of lighting until close to the end. They think of what they're going to do from different artistic angles. And then at the end, they're like, and now let's light it as well as possible. Whereas <laughs> like, he's always like, the lighting is literally what people are seeing. Right. You're, sh- yeah. I mean, from his perspective, you should be in, get your lighting designer, you're the second person on the show. Maybe right. that's a little bit excessive. But like, his point being that like, when you, if the people who come from the lighting design area, when they think about starting a project that they have creative control from the beginning and you start with the lighting, you create an entirely different work of art. It's a world you're, you're shaping. You're shaping that world. And, and, and I'm sure people that do sound would look at it that way. The people who look at, do props would look at it that way. The people who do costumes look at it that Uh, way. Sounds not important, but lighting, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but all of these things are valid ways to go in. And really, I think that a lot of like where the directors in the States choose to start, it seems like it's almost from like a social hierarchy thing rather than saying, what does this work really need? Yeah. And it it did, you know, it helped me like after working on a few of these projects, even on projects that we would work on, what I would do is I just get everything ready. Like I would be like, okay, this guy needs to wear this exactly like this, where this guy needs to like, you know, look like this from, from head to toe. I would do more prep work, but you know, in, I think in the States that can be a disservice because that's like, you know, you're, you're telling, you're telling your makeup, you're telling your wardrobe, like you don't trust them. Yeah. Right. It's like, in China, they, they would not take that as a lack of trust that you were in in all their stuff. No, it makes their job easier. It's like, okay, good. Finally, some clear what to do. some clear directions. The other way around would be like the director doesn't know what he wants. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that. That's always the worry on a lot of shows. Even when we were on the uh, that the that knockoff SNL show, right? We would spend so much time worrying that we were wasting our time because we would get a we would get directions saying, okay, the the special guest is going to be this person probably. But then, right. but then we we kind of can't write sketches, topical sketches for that guy, unless we know he's actually going to be there. And so there was always this element of like, like you know, we had to follow the rules as we were given, even though if you applied some thinking to the subject, you would do things differently. Like we should have, it felt to me, we should have been writing general funny sketches if we didn't know that the guest was definitely going to be there. But the direction we got was to write for this guy. So if you show up to the the table read and and you can't just say like, well, I know you told me to write for that actor, even though we all kind of know he's not going to be there. But I decided to ignore the direction and make just a funny sketch about something different. Right. It wouldn't matter how good the sketch was like the the um, the annoyance of the director of not being listened to yeah. would would uh, overwhelm the the logic of the situation and with that show i mean with comedy you know editing is is everything yeah you you miss one second it's not funny anymore you yeah. miss a reaction it's not funny and a lot of times like you have a guy who who knows how to edit tv up there doing live edits and yeah. he doesn't know 
the rhythm of comedy, yeah. so he would miss a lot of reactions. The number one thing, as somebody who's edited a lot of comedy sketches that everybody messes up, you need the reactions. The reactions are where the laugh happened. You say a funny line. It's not funny unless you see somebody else being like, ugh. Right, like, the audience, you know, like, audience, they're looking for a signal. Yeah, they, they want to know how the people in the story responded because that's the funny part. Oftentimes also, like, we've heard every joke already. Right. But... Any given joke, how do the other people react is always a mystery up until the very moment you show it on screen. Yeah. So the, the reaction shots are like really, really important. It's like the um it's it's like in Xiangsheng and Crosstalk, like people think the Joker is doing the jokes. The the Pungan, the straight man, is where the laughter happens. Yeah. It's seeing the how reaction it affects of the straight him. man. Yeah. I mean, going back to just, you know, co- collaborations, I mean, what was your experience? Because I do feel like, you know, the Chinese Maybe the like status has it affects the way people collaborate, right? Yeah. People know you're the director. They they feel like they need to follow orders more versus mm-hmm. being more collaborative. I mean, what well, you know? I definitely felt that that sort of like you know top down versus collaborative approach most clearly when trying to run my business, running that comedy club. Yeah, I I really had the idea when I started to say like I'm not an interior designer. I know the comedy. I'll be able to find somebody on my team who's just got a knack for this that'll just go and put the lights where they need to go and like put up the projector where it needs to go and like make the whole place nice. And we went two years without really ever having anybody who did that. And it was because I realized that even if I hire somebody professionally who does that professionally, they still are waiting to be micromanaged on all those details. Right. Which lights you need for what use case. Some of that is legit because... Um, you can't have a space lit well for everything. You know, you need to make some decisions on what you want to do in the room and where you put the stuff because, you know, uh, that that's important. But other aspects were just like, um, it's very difficult to just hold the, hold the whole department off to somebody and say, go do it. And then in order to encourage the behavior you want, you wind up having to accept stuff that is not good enough or that you don't like. But if you say no, then you've just undermined the whole point of telling this person they have creative authority. Right. And so a lot of it turned out to be an exercise in personal openness of recreating my own vision over and over and over and over and over again in order to allow other people to have that work out. And sometimes it worked better than others, I yeah. think. Interestingly, you know, I mean, just observing, you know, uh, on our sketch show and then other yeah. other workplace environments, like managers, they are very good at giving specific notes. Yeah. Like giving the, yeah, they're, they're good at, I mean, that's kind of a sign of a good manager in China too. Do exactly as what I'm telling you. And yeah. they're very good at that. It's like, it takes a lot out of them, I think, yeah. but, but they do. They well, they have very to specific. do that. And also the, um, I think that there's a, a part of it also might be a lack of experience in certain angles. Like a lot of the stuff that we were on, like, you know, if you're at the top level, you might have people that have 10, 15 years experience, but like, you know, on the, on the, on the lower levels, you're dealing with people out of school two or three years and figuring things out themselves, things out that have only ever listened to orders. Like, um, uh, what was the name of the guy that did the, uh, the sets on Malfan Jazu that we were, that we were working with? Uh, 
Uh, Poa? Yeah, Poa. He was um, he was good. Yeah. Like, I had total trust. If I had been in charge of that show, I could say, build me a set where it's like a, a hot spring outside of a outside of a cave, and we're going to need a unicorn to roll on somehow. And, and he was so good, you just saw him working, that you could hand it off to him. You know he's going to wow you. Like, yeah. It's always better than you expect. But that was because they had a real TV show. Right. We didn't, like, in our sketch show, we didn't have the ability to hire somebody of that quality. Um, I'm yeah. trying to think of who did our, our our sets, but like it was good. But like I'm sure you had to do a lot of micro. Oh no no no! We had a good. We uh, no Heather. Heather did. Oh Heather did a good job. No Heather when Heather. No the first round wasn't Heather. The second round was oh, Heather. Okay. Yeah. So I was thinking like the um, like, Heather did a great good job. She's he, also very like she she's very collaborative. Yeah, yeah. And she so likes this, to be. And so this is the other thing is like it really is person by person kind of how. But she's also works. worked with a lot of international commercials too. That's maybe yeah. why she has that experience. So yeah, that I mean, I think that for me, it's a good muscle to have. It also depends on who you're from, uh, like who you're working with. Like I had a lot more confidence in giving those sort of open things to people in our improv troupe yeah. than I did from people from film background, uh, right. because the improv people are used to thinking creatively and yes anding and they're just like nobody goes into improv to follow orders you know right so but but in other places in production it's like you know the the movie is a moving machine of 500 people it does work if you just follow orders like you will get a movie made which is really the the goal of the thing um but it does create a certain type of feel working on set and of course that must impact the the end uh result somehow yeah. You know. So anyway, yeah. we are running out of time, but this is a very fun subject. If you think that this was uh, interesting to listen to or you have any specific uh, questions you want to ask about directing, put them in the comments. Yeah, send us your address again. And, um, you know, we've we've made a lot of stuff over the years, so if uh, you're interested in um, hearing more war stories or stuff like that, we're very happy to keep sharing. So let us know what you thought about this topic in the comments. Um, is there anything you kind of want to end on, Tom? No, I mean, go watch a uh, Chinese movie. Yeah, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, that, obviously. If you haven't watched any Chinese movies, what, what's a good recommendation you say? Uh, for oh, yeah. Uh, what, is like, what is it in English? Medicine uh, God or something like yeah. that. I'm not the medicine God. I don't know. I'm not a medicine God. It's a, a good one, but that's not the title, so you'll never find it. Yeah. <laughs> um, good luck. Maybe we can link to it. I don't know what the legalities of that are. But um, in any case, yeah, go watch a Chinese movie, and um, I think you'll find that it uh, you, there's some good ones out there. So, uh, super cool. I've been Jesse Appel. This is Tom Chang. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>